Psalm 14. Father, we we got a lot of things going on, and the world has a lot of things going on. So we need more of your Holy Spirit. And I even just pray for my own mind. I am so frustrated that the enemy is doing what he's doing. And our society is not stepping up. So Lord, I just pray for my own mind. Help me to focus this morning, to lay it down. It's it's your plan. You have all things under control. So I just pray for my own mind to have peace and I can focus on your word this morning and give me the gift of teaching. And Lord, that all of us in this room would, and and on this campus and every Bible-believing campus in our community, that people would understand the severity of our days and they would make a decision about Jesus, that we would grow, we'd mature, we'd go deeper, that those who don't know you would receive you. Father, I pray for anyone in this room right now that does not have a personal relationship with Jesus, that they would receive you this day. Open their eyes, Lord, to see how much you love them and care for them. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Psalm 14, as David thinks about humanity, the big scope of humanity, and possibly some specific people, we don't know exactly when he wrote this, remember that David spent up to 10 years being chased by King Saul for nothing that he did wrong, but for those who falsely accused him and for King Saul's own issues, he exposes a principle that that Paul elaborates on in Romans in the New Testament. So Psalm 14, to the chief musician, and again, if you're new or visiting, remember these psalms are songs, are literal songs. And as we've spoken over the the last few months, music has a heavy influence on all of our lives, whether we want to admit it or not. So, to the chief musician, a song or a psalm of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. The fool is said in his heart, there is no God. An atheist, A means no, theist means God. So an atheist believes that there is no God, period. There is no such thing as a God. Agnostic, A again, means no. Gnostic means unknowing or ignorant. Unknowing or ignorant. So an agnostic is unsure if a God exists. And here in these opening verses, David gives us a classic example of how you can take the Bible and make it say whatever you want it to say. And I have, I have actually said this to some people as they want to talk about the Bible. It's a great way to start out a conversation as you start getting into a conversation. Because you can even say to them, it kind of shocks them. You can say, well, you know, there is no God. And, and they kind of look at you like, well, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you went to church. 
Well, yeah, but there is, there is no God. It gets their attention. And then you can just weave it in and say, well, the Bible says, I guess I need to explain the whole verse. The Bible says, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. Oh, I think you just called me a fool. <laughs> it's a great way to start a conversation. Shock. It helps people wake up. There is a God. Now, when you look at King James or the New King James, you'll notice there is, if you if you have your Bible, I'm not sure about the electronic applications. How about the electronic applications? Does it have it italicized? Those of you who have an electronic app, is it italicized? Oh, it's in quotes? So, so words that are italicized in the print, I guess, are in quotes. Because as you look in the print, in the King James or the New King James, anything italicized is not in the original text. The translator had inserted those italicized words to maybe help us in understanding translation. Most of the time it does help. Sometimes it can actually bring a little confusion. But overall, it really does help. And so you'll notice, basically it says, the fool has said in his heart, no God. No God. That short little two-letter word is one of the first words our children learn. And it is probably the hardest to debug them of, to break them of, get the program out. They just like, no, come over here. No, do this. No, stinking little kid. Get, come, no. Not that any of us ever did that. You see, when someone tells you to do something, sometimes the flesh, sometimes the flesh just wants to say no. Sometimes when I ask you to do things on a Sunday morning, I'm sure some of you are just sitting there going, no, I don't want to do it. But peer pressure kicks in and we all do it. That's just reality. Why is that? You see, because instructions hold us accountable. Instructions hold us accountable, which means we become responsible for our actions. And our flesh is uncomfortable about that. So it's easier for a person to say, there is no God. For then there's no accountability. Which translates over into no responsibility. No God. Sex outside of marriage. There's no God. So no Bible. So I can have sex outside of marriage. It's no big deal. No accountability. No responsibility. And you can just equate that to, into so many areas. No, I just deny. I deny, I deny. Which means then I don't have to be accountable. I don't have to be responsible. Well, as we look at this, it says the fool. And so as you look at the word fool... I'll, I'll totally kill these words, so I'm not even going to try. But we do have a slide. There's three different words in the Hebrew language for fool. There are the words. If you're a Hebrew scholar, feel free. But uh, the first one is dull or stupid. The second one is the unreasonable and perverted. So when you hear of the fool, there's three. The bottom one is the one that this is defined as, Nabal. This is the Hebrew word Nabal. The brutish one who refuses help. And we're going to leave that slide up there for a few minutes. Because as you hear that, you might already think of someone. And if you've been reading your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, that word is attached to a specific man, that was his literal name, who actually 
was in the Old Testament. And David had dealings with this man. And Nabal gives the reader a great example of this definition. The brutish one who refuses help. This is the word fool here that we're reading in the Hebrew. The third one there. So you can find that whole story in 1 Samuel 25. And Nabal is a definition referenced here. And it's not a matter of the head or intellect. So it's not about the one who is unlearned. As Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh foolish Galatians. Unlearned or ignorant. No, it's, you're just brutish. You refuse help. You, You don't want anything to do. You see, the bottom line is that when a person removes God from their thinking or from their lifestyle, even in Christianity, well, how could I remove God? We already talked about it in communion, when you're in willful disobedience. When you live a lifestyle and and I don't care and you don't care, we just go, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I no longer care. You removed God, not that you've lost your salvation, that's off the table, but you can remove God from your focus. And go down a road that you thought you'd never go down. Go down a road that I thought I'd never go down. It happens on a regular basis. I'm sure everyone in this room could stand up and give a testimony of a Christian that went south. And you're like, I would have never thought they would have done that. I would have never. Well, how did they get there? They refused help. They refused to repent. They refused to turn back to the one who is their ultimate need. God. They're not saying God doesn't exist. They're saying, I I just don't want the help. I want to do it my way. And so I'm just going to be bullheaded, and I'm going to push forward, and I'm going to do what I want to do. And unfortunately, there are those around us who reap devastating consequences from that attitude. You see, their heart has become cold towards the things of God, and now it's basically all about their abilities and their know-how. They know better. They know better than the Word of God. Well, that's just an archaic book. It's 2,000 years old. It's not applicable to 2017. It's still applicable. And it's a very sad place to be. But this is where King Saul, maybe David wrote this even during the time of King Saul. Again, we don't know for certain. But King Saul is residing. And David knows it. King Saul's heart has grown so cold towards God. He didn't want to be accountable to God, which would have relieved him of his responsibility towards God. No, I just want to kill David. My son Jonathan is going to have the kingdom, not David. And so Saul refused help. He pushed God aside, and I'm going to do it my way. And it cost him his life, and it cost his family, their their sons, his sons, their lives as well. So whether this is announcing that there is no God or whether a person says no to God, it really doesn't matter because it all leads to becoming foolish and prove proves what is stated here. That no one, as we read all three verses, because someone might say, well, I'm not that bad. I, I, I seek after God. If you're honest with yourself, think about when you receive Jesus as your Savior. And you, and the Holy Spirit came within you. And then think back to prior to that moment in time. Then ask yourself a real honest question. Was I really seeking after God? The way I am now. Now that the Holy Spirit's within me. Now that I am saved. Was I really seeking after God? And I think if you're honest with yourself, you're going to say no. 
I was playing church. I was being religious. I was trying to be good, but I really wasn't seeking after God. I was just going out of tradition. I was going out of peer pressure. I was going out of whatever means. So as you read the word of God and you step back and get the bigger picture, you have to admit there is no one that's really seeking after God. They're seeking after religion, seeking after acceptance from their religion or those who are in their religion. So they think they're doing good things, but at the end of the day, they're not good. They're not good. Blowing yourself up, stabbing people to death in the name of religion, that's not good. That's not scriptural. It's not right. It's not biblical. But yet we have a society, unfortunately, and and guys, this is not a small number of people. Islam is not... They make up a fourth of the world's population, if you haven't figured that out yet. It's huge. So this is not some little thing in a corner. Well, we could just ignore it. It'll eventually go away because there's only a few million of them. No. A fourth of the world's population is following Islam. This is a very, very serious situation. But we know the enemy is behind it. Satan. Because he has come to steal, kill, and destroy. What are you going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? Well, we better get on our knees and make sure we're right with God and that we stay right with God. Because you, because I, we can become foolish. Again, when the person says no to God or there is no God. You see, there is no one who does good apart from God. A person might say to someone, oh, you're such a nice person. You're such a good person. But they're looking on the external while God looks upon the heart. Again, this isn't, these verses are not about the intellect. David, through the Holy Spirit, Paul in the New Testament, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all. This is not hard. In Greek, all is all. You don't have to know Greek. All is all. Everyone. Everyone. Including Mary. Including all Peter, Paul, all the saints of old. Everyone. Everyone all so if you're here this morning and you don't have jesus as your savior you're in desperate straits because you need a savior and if you want to be brutish if you want to stiff arm god if you want to say no i don't need this religion i want to reassure you i'm not asking you to become religious we do not we're not religious here and we don't need religion i'm asking you do you have a relationship with christ do you have a relationship with god because that's what the bible says if, you, if you're not getting into heaven unless you have a relationship with God, it's not about coming to Calvary Chapel or any other denominational church or non-denominational church. It's do you have a relationship with God? If you do not, you're foolish. It's just, what the, it's just the way it is. God loves you and he's reaching out to you. Back in Psalm 14, verse 4, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great fear. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. So the word there is the workers of iniquity. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge, is their refuge or their shelter. You see, David uses a biblical metaphor here, which means the wicked exploited or abused the helpless. Still happening today. 
But there is a God and each and every person will have to stand before that God on judgment day, whether they believe in him or not. For the believer though, for you and me this morning as believers, the Lord is our refuge, he's our shelter. For there will be no scamming God on judgment day. No scamming. Because God knows the hearts. And that should cause all of us to consider our actions and motives. See, revenge, revenge. And David has some incredible prayers for revenge. But as again, you read from Genesis to Revelation, we come to find out that revenge is not to be and has no place in the life of the believer. We are to pray for those who persecute us. We may have to draw a line, we may have to separate, but we are not to have revenge. And as we read these verses here, notice there's two groups of people. There's the workers of iniquity, and there's the generation of the righteous. And I think most of us in this room know which group we're in. But if you're with us this morning, you don't know for sure that you're righteous before God, then you need to accept Jesus as your Savior and allow Him to become your righteousness. Because if you don't have that, you're in the other category. You are the worker of iniquity. Verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Interesting request here that David says. For the Messiah, we know now looking back, the Messiah did come out of Zion and will return to Zion. Zion is that, that area, the mountaintop where the temple was and where the Dome of the Rock is now, but the Temple Mount is still there. And you have the city of David, which is, that whole area is called Zion. That whole mount is, of area there is called Zion. Jesus visited there. Jesus was crucified there in that area of Zion. He is coming back there again. And he is going to rule and reign for a thousand years where every Jew and every Gentile believer will be saved. You know, Romans 11, 26 and 27 says this. And so all Israel will be saved. All Israel? Every Jew and every Gentile, after the separation of the sheep and the goats, that final judgment, not the great white throne judgment, but that final judgment prior to entering to the millennial reign of Christ, every human that survives the great tribulation, every believer that survives the great tribulation, will enter in to that thousand-year reign. So every Jew and every Gentile will be saved. There'll be not one unsaved person on the face of the earth at that time. But then repopulation will take place, and people will have to have free will, and then they will have to make that decision about Jesus. And as you read the book, the Bible, which is just totally mind-boggling, after a thousand years of Jesus ruling and reigning, there's going to be human beings that are going to rebel against him. No, we don't want him. He's done an okay job, but we don't want him ruling and reigning over us anymore. After a thousand years of having Jesus on this earth. No, no, no. What, what would you call that person? A fool. <laughs> yeah. Foolish, brutish. No, I'm going to do it myself. It's amazing how strong-willed we can be, isn't it? Amazing. Psalm 15, a psalm of David. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? You see this verse, ask a few simple questions. Who may abide? Who may dwell? And David goes on to give us the answer to these questions. Now we could go on and read these next few verses and think that they are what a person needs to do to become saved. This is not a list 
to gain salvation. Again, this is not a list to gain salvation, but rather a list that shows salvation. If you're new to the Lord, you didn't work for your salvation, you can't work to keep your salvation. But we should be doing things to show that we are saved. There should be a difference between you and your coworker now. Maybe you used to hang out together and used to swear together and drink together and do all these other things together. Well, now there should be a change. And that's going to make you uncomfortable and that's going to make your coworker uncomfortable. But there should be a change because you now have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And so there should be a transformation taking place. And as you see, and as that happens, your coworker is going to say, Oh, you're getting religious on me now, are you? Oh, you're holier than thou now, are you? You know, those phrases where they really don't even know what else to say, so they throw those out there to try to make you feel guilty. Where you can just go back and go, you know, I'm not. I just have a relationship with God now through Jesus, and I have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me, and I'm just convicted. I, I can't do that anymore. It's just for, it's just not, no, I can't. You get to witness, you get to share the gospel. You see, the rabbis of old taught that a person needed to fulfill 613 commands in order to be righteous. But Jesus gave only one command, one command to a very religious person named Nicodemus. Do you remember what that command was? You must be born again. Nicodemus, you're religious. You're a Pharisee. You're a teacher. You're one of the main teachers in all of Israel. Nicodemus sought out Jesus. Jesus didn't seek out Nicodemus. And Nicodemus came to him at night. Not sure why. We don't want to surmise too much, but not sure why. But anyways, he came to him at night and Jesus told him straight up, Nicodemus, you must. He didn't say, you might want to think about this, Nicodemus. Well, maybe you should. Well, Nicodemus, this is one road of many roads to God. No, no. He told this very religious man, you must be born again. 613 commands, Nicodemus, it's not going to help you. You must be born again. And it's the same thing for us even to this day. You must be born again. Let's look at Jude 24 and 25. It's that small little book, might only be one page in your Bible, right before Revelation. Jude 24, verses 24 and 25. Because David in Psalm 15 is going to make a point at the very end of the psalm. As you're turning there, I'm going to read his point. David says, he who does these things shall never be moved, shall never be moved. And those, that phrase there, those four words in the Hebrew, they mean to waver, to slip, shake, or fall. So as we read these verses, keep that in mind. To waver, to slip, to shake, or fall. And so in Jude 24 and 25, we read this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to him, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior. Notice that. To God our Savior. That would be Jesus as our Savior. Not God the Father. The triunity of the Godhead. They're one. Yet they're three distinct. God the Father did not come to down to this earth to die for us. God the Son. Not God the Holy Spirit. God the Son. Notice again. Here's another verse. 
to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. So notice in verse 24 there, to present you faultless. God the Father, through Jesus' sacrifice, through Jesus sending the Holy Spirit who now dwells within us, He is able to keep us. Not we ourselves. He is able to keep us. Very, very important. We've got a slide for 2 Timothy 1.12 here. Paul says at the very end of his life, For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. Nevertheless, guys, it, it's coming to America. I gave you some examples early on before the study started. Are you going to be ashamed of Jesus? If you're reading the news at all, just even scanning over the news, there's a full-on frontal attack on Christians. Even if you click, you might want to know this, because you might not be aware of this. Even if you click the word like on someone else's post, and their post has something to say against homosexuality, and you like that, that could cost you your job. That happened this past week. I think you better wake up. Christianity is on a full-on frontal attack. What? I, I can't like somebody's post? Feel free. What are you going to do about the ramifications? Because if you're not ashamed to do that, then do it. But also know there could be a very serious consequence in your life. But again, I'm not on this stuff. I'm like, whatever. But again, if you're willing to do that, take a stand. Praise God. You shouldn't be ashamed. God will protect you. God will take care of you. If you really believe he's God, he will. I believe he's God. He, he will. He'll take care of you. It's just crazy the days we're living in. I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. So again, th- what does Paul say? Keep. What? Keep what? Did, did Paul give him his 401k? I know God could keep my 401k. Didn't have 401ks back then, did they? What did Paul give? What did Paul give? Paul gave his whole life. Paul didn't just give him, well, I'll give you Sundays. I know that God is able to keep my Sundays until he comes back. I'm going to go to the synagogue on Saturday. Oh, okay, I'll give him Saturdays as well. I know he can keep Saturdays, so I'll go to the synagogue on Saturdays and preach Jesus on Saturdays, and then I'll go to church on Sunday and preach Jesus on Sunday. But Monday through Friday, that's mine, God. You ain't keeping that. Hmm. This is Christianity right here. Are we willing to put our whole lives into the hand of God and say, you can keep it? And if you decide to take it all away, it doesn't matter because you can keep it. You can keep me. You see, Paul has lost it all. He's writing Second Timothy from prison. He's lost everything. He doesn't have a house. He doesn't have a, a chariot. doesn't have a horse. doesn't have all the things that he had as a Pharisee. The, the food, the clothes, the wife, the children. He was most likely married and had children. He was a Pharisee. That was expected. He had nothing. In even one of his letters, he says, everyone has abandoned me. He didn't even have Christian fellowship at some time of his life. He was chained to a prison guard. Nobody visiting him. But what does he write? I know. I know who has me. God has me. 
and God is able to keep me. That was his mindset. I encourage all of us to get that mindset and get it quick. Is God able to keep you? Psalm 15, 2 and 3, he who walks uprightly, so now we see this list, and there's some contrast and comparisons, but again, don't take this as a list of works. It's not a list of works. We're taught that in the word, that we cannot accomplish anything, only through the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we look at this list, we shouldn't become overwhelmed, but rather seek after more of the Holy Spirit and how we might walk in these godly attributes. So he walks uprightly. How do I walk uprightly? First and foremost, asking for more of the Holy Spirit. I need more of the Holy Spirit. And what will I do as I do that? And works righteousness. How do I work righteousness? Being right with God. That's what righteousness means. If I'm right with God, then I will be right with man. If somebody doesn't want to be right with me, that's their decision. But if I'm right with God, I will be right with man. It's hard to not, it's hard to not be right with man because the Holy Spirit's going to convict us of our sin, of bitterness or anger or resentment or whatever it might be. So when we're right with God, we are going to be right with man. So, and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians, speaks the truth in love. Speaks the truth in love. He who does not backbite with his tongue. Man, is this so applicable to Facebook nowadays? He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor. Notice this. Nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. Again, notice that. Reproach means disgrace or scorn. Nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. Again, good list for you and I to pray about. In, who, uh, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. But he who honors those who fear the Lord. The word feared there is reverence. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. So now there's two things within there. Is we're not, you know, don't encourage or lift up a person who's seeking after the world, but rather hang with those who love the Lord. Because influence can have a very positive or negative Impact upon our souls, our lives. You know, it's so vital the fellowship with those who are seeking after God in His ways. And the second part of this verse is that when you make a commitment, when you as a believer make a commitment, keep it, even, even if it's going to cause a little discomfort. Well, I'm going to help. I'm going to help out. And then the time comes to help. Uh, you know, I'm just feeling kind of tired. It's been a long day at work. Eh, they'll understand. Who will understand? That you're lazy? No. God doesn't even understand that. So you make a commitment, follow through on the commitment. If you don't want to make the commitment, then don't make the commitment. But if we make a commitment, follow through on the commitment. It's a reflection on your life as a believer. Now, if something comes up, obviously life happens. Everybody understands that. That's not the issue. Or if you make a commitment and then you come to realize, wait a minute, there's something unscriptural about this commitment. Well, then obviously you want to change that commitment and deal with that commitment. But if everything's above board, it's totally scriptural. If you make a commitment, make the commitment. And I would encourage you guys to make the commitment on time. It's one of my pet peeves, personally. If we say we're going to be there at 11, be there at 10 to 11. And maybe that just goes back to my own programming. 
We were always taught as little kids growing up, be on time. Matter of fact, be a little early. See if you can help out. See if you can do something. Don't show up at 10 after 11. Show up at 10 to 11. And again, things happen. You know, everybody understands that. But again, it's an example of our faith. We're walking out our faith. Because when we say we're going to be somewhere and other people are relying upon us and we don't show up on time, what are we saying? I mean, what are we saying? I don't honor you. You're, you're, you're saying that. I don't honor you. And the Bible in Romans chapter 12 says, honor all. Honor one another. So even if it hurts, you honor that person. And you show up on time, you show up ahead of time. And you say, "What? Well, you know what, I just want to honor you. Verse 5, he who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Again, as believers, we shouldn't be loaning out money. Oh, you need help? Oh, you're having a hard time? Oh, no problem. Here's the money. Um, But there's going to be a little attachment to that. Don't do that. No, that's not honorable. Just allow the person to have it and set up a course of events where they can repay it uh, in a timely manner. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Very, very important as believers. He who does these things, again, shall never be moved. Notice what David says, shall never be moved, means to waver, to slip, to shake, to fall. As I was studying, I I thought about Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon of the Mount, 5, 6, and 7. At the end of verse 7, Jesus gives an, an example. He says there were two men. One man built his house upon the bedrock. He dug down deep and he built upon the rock. The other man just built his house upon the sand. And the storms came. And the man who built his house upon the rock, the bedrock, dug down, dug deep, took the time to investigate and do it right, his house remained. The man who built his house upon the sand, demolished. He lost everything. So for you and I this morning, he who does these things shall never be moved, as David gives this list. Again, not for salvation. Not for salvation. But as evidence of salvation. How are you and I building? Our foundation is Jesus. Our foundation is Jesus. But how are we building on that foundation? So that when others see us this week, as we go to work, or as we talk to our neighbors, or as we invite them to Greg Laurie, they might go, wow, you're a Christian? I didn't even know you were a Christian. You want me to come to a Christian event? <laughs> you know, you're not part of the secret Christian club. People should know you're Christians. You don't have to be goofy about it either. You're paid to work. You're not paid to evangelize, so you work. But after the fact, before the fact, at lunchtime, it's your time. People should know you're Christians. So take these invitations and invite somebody to Jesus. Maybe they'll ask you some questions about your own faith and you get an opportunity to witness to them. Again, off of work time, not during work. You're, you're to be the best example of a Christian and an employee on the work site. But invite somebody. Step out. Test your own faith. Is it worth having? Is it worth using? The Holy Spirit will meet you and you'll find out it is. Father, we thank you and praise you for this morning. And Lord, as we see things happening in our, our world that we never thought we'd see, your word says it's going to get way worse. So are we going to trust in our politicians to make everything better? Or are we going to trust in your word and wake up and do what we need to do? Take a stand for Christ. 
Father, we thank you and praise you for your word and for these psalms and that you inspired men to write these words down for us so that 3,000 years later, we can still learn, we can still apply. It's so practical. Father, we thank you for the practical application. Use it in our hearts. And you know, as the saints are praying, I've mentioned it several times this morning, Maybe you're here this morning and you do not have Jesus as your Savior. You came out of convenience or you came because somebody asked you to come, so you just came to keep peace maybe. But you're here. Praise God. I want you to know God loves you. He really does love you. And He sent Jesus to die for you. He's not interested in you being religious. He is interested in a relationship with you. And you have people right around you right now that are praying for you, that love you and want you to make the right decision about Jesus. Because we only get one chance at this. We only get one lifetime. Frank was 94. He received Jesus as his Savior. We know where Frank is. How about you? If you were to die today, would you know for certain you're going to heaven? If not, you can do that right now. I'm going to pray a simple prayer. You pray this prayer with me. And if you pray this simple prayer, you will become God's son, God's daughter, and you will become a part of the family of God. Not the family of Calvary Chapel, the family of God. Father, we thank you and praise you. We invite your Holy Spirit right now to stir the hearts of the unbeliever that they might receive you right now. So if that is you and you'd like to receive Jesus, just pray this prayer with me. God, I need you. I don't want to be foolish. I don't want to be standoffish. I come into your presence And I ask for your forgiveness. God, I repent of my hard heart. God, I I repent of my pride, my arrogance. And I humbly come to you and acknowledge I need Jesus. So God, I accept Jesus right now as my Savior. And I say thank you for loving me. Thank you for accepting me. I invite your Holy Spirit to come into my life right now. To lead me and guide me into all truth through your Bible. God, I thank you that I can now call you Father. My Father. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we thank you for this wonderful morning. 
And again, we just lift up those who are suffering right now through the bizarreness of this life. Use our brothers and sisters, Lord, in the Sudan and in Iraq and Iran, Lebanon, Syria, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank. Use our brothers and sisters, Lord, in the UK and around this world to minister to those who have lost loved ones, whatever the case may be that they might come to know Christ. Father, we also pray for safety this week as the high schoolers are up at camp. We pray for safety, Lord, the ankles, the knees, the heads. Lord, just just bless them. Keep them safe. But more, Lord, more importantly, stir these young hearts that they would go deep, that they would build on the bedrock of Jesus. And they just wouldn't have a mountaintop experience. But they literally grow in the faith. The true, doctrinally, biblically correct faith of Christianity. Bless them, Lord. And we pray you bring them home safely. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't we all stand? God bless you guys. Have a great day. If you need prayer, please come up. We would love to pray for you. If you receive Jesus, please come up. We'd love to pray with you. God bless you guys. Crying from the mercy seat. Demonstrate your love. Set the captives free. Wash us in the blood. It's crying from the mercy seat. Demonstrate your love. Come and set the captives free. Smile.